The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. In case you're not aware, today is a interesting day in this country. <laughs> Someone reminded me of that before the sit. Maybe it's a little bit fitting because the topic of the talk this morning is dukkha, which is sometimes translated as suffering. And <laughs> I think for, for some people, this uh, election process has been, uh, there's been some suffering associated with it. And so maybe today, I don't know, election day is the end of suffering, maybe? Um, this is the third talk in uh, a four-part series on the three characteristics of experience, what's called the three universal characteristics of experience. Um, when we talk about insight meditation, these are the insights that is referred to. Um, you know, so, so in a way, maybe one of the ultimate purposes or ultimate values of insight meditation is to bring us into alignment with things as they are, bring us in alignment with truth. And for the Buddha, things as they are has a particular understanding and, and can be seen from, maybe we can say, can be seen from three perspectives. And uh, the first perspective is impermanence, the Pali word being anicca. And in a way, this is the core or the fundamental insight um, that we can experience um, just the just the simple truth that everything changes and even though in a way it's so obvious you know I mean everyone anyone would say you know do things change you would say of course they do of course things change um, And then the question is, what does it mean to fully open to this truth, to fully meet it um, and accept it and be in harmony with it in all of its different um, manifestations? Um, I think one of the most difficult manifestations of impermanence is when we is when it brings suffering. You know, when we are, have something that we, we don't want, or when we're separated from something that we do want. And um, so this is sort of, you know, the, the dilemma maybe, or the, the challenge, or the request of being human is, 
How do I live in the face of impermanence? How do I, um, how can I love? How can I be happy? How can I um, make commitments in a way? At the same time, knowing that um, any, any sense of being together will end in separation, you know, and this is you know, sort of holding both of these. So impermanence is sometimes considered the heart, the heart of uh, the Dharma, because it's, it's nature. It's, you know, whatever arises by its nature, having arisen, will pass away. Whatever appears in our experience, by the fact that it has appeared, means it will disappear. And um, and even though this may sound um, sad, and, and 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 of course it will, there will be sadness, and there'll be experienced as sadness. There's a way that we can meet impermanence that is actually freeing. That's actually, you know. Um, that when we meet impermanence as it is and we don't, doesn't have to be another way, um, that can open something and free something for us. Um, but the, the, the impermanent nature, the changing nature of things often brings suffering. And this is one translation of the second characteristic, which is the Pali word being dukkha. Um, dukkha is considered the heart of what the Buddha taught in the sense of many times he said, I teach one thing, which is dukkha and the end of dukkha. And dukkha is a word that some people consider it almost untranslatable in English, or maybe there are 10 or 20 words that together give, give more of a complete flavor of what dukkha is. Um, the word that is often used, commonly used, is suffering. Um, And so I'll talk a little bit more about suffering and then offer some other words that bring out, that sort of round out um, this characteristic of dukkha. And just to say the third characteristic, which we'll talk about next week, is the Pali word is anatta, which is um, usually translated as not self, no self or not self. And the idea that in our experience, anything that a human being can experience with this body and mind will have the nature of being impermanent, will have the nature of um, being dukkha to the sense of sometimes it's suffering, sometimes it's just the unreliable nature of things because of its impermanence. You know, if something is impermanent, 
we can't rely on it maybe in the way that we hope to. And that's dukkha. Unsatisfying, unsatisfactory, unreliable for the purpose of lasting fulfillment, lasting happiness. And then anatta, the third characteristic, not self, is this idea of whatever we experience, whatever a human being can experience, is not me, is not mine in a fundamental sense. I don't own it. I can't control it. Some people talk about anatta as the uncontrollable nature of experience, the ungovernable. You know, things go their own way. We have some control, definitely have some control. But do we really have ultimate control? Um, and so the, the proposition, the idea for, for Dharma practice is that understanding these three, understanding anicca, dukkha, anatta, impermanence, uh, not self, and this unsatisfying, unreliable nature of experience is, brings wisdom, brings insight. And um, there's something that just a deep seeing of these, a deep opening to them, um, frees us. We can, we're able to let go of something. The ways of seeing experience, when we can see experience through the lens of impermanence, when we can see experience through the lens of suffering or unsatisfyingness, when we can see experience through the terms of impersonality, it's not me, it's not mine, I don't have to identify, don't have to own this. Um, that way of seeing brings letting go. That way of seeing brings freedom, brings lightness, brings ease. And the idea is that the more we understand these three, the more we integrate that understanding within us, we can move through this world in a more easy way, in a, in a happier way. We're not going against the nature of things. Um, one image that I really like comes from Ajahn Chah, who is a Thai, very revered Thai meditation master and monk. And he, his teaching is very down to earth and he gives these great images. And the one image that sticks in my mind is he says, if a person goes to a river that's flowing downhill and then wants that water to flow uphill, you know, what's flowing downhill. We go there, we look at it, and we really want it to flow up. We have a lot of good reasons it should flow uphill. And we start, you know, really looking at it and, well, why doesn't it flow uphill? And it should, maybe we think it should, maybe we get upset, we stomp our feet. My, my four-year-old, I don't know where she gets this, but when she doesn't get what she wants, she, she stomps her feet and, you know, you're not nice, and you stomp, stomp, stomp. And, you know, this is what we do. And the water is just flowing. The water is just flowing downhill. The water is just flowing one way. Water can only flow one way. Um, but there's something in us that is misunderstanding, that's misperceiving the nature of things. 
and we can just see in this example, when we misperceive, when we misunderstand, uh, we suffer. And that suffering is, is in us, I mean, it's not in the flowing water. And it's not by its nature in us, but it's something in the relationship between us and what's happening. You know, in that relationship is where we get caught, where we want things to be other than they are. And um, the, the term in Dharma vocabulary is clinging, grasping or clinging. You know, when we hold on, we cling to experience, we suffer. So, so this aspect of dukkha that is that we can call suffering is a very important part of um, of Dharma practice of understanding, and um, it's the first noble truth that the Buddha taught: the truth of dukkha, the truth of suffering. And for many people who come to practice, there's a there can be the sense of relief that finally somebody's talking about suffering. Somebody's talking about the difficulties that are inherent in being a person. Um, when, I, when I was in um, college, I went to, to college at Stanford, just you know, down the road, and there was this, um, people called it, I forget what it is, but it's kind of the duck syndrome, where you're, the duck is placid on the surface, and you know, kind of happy, kind of just swanning around, and then underneath, you know, paddling like crazy, <laughs> you know, and um, and if you just look at the surface, you know, when I got there, it was like, wow, everybody's so happy. This is so easy for everybody. Why is it so easy for everybody else? This is difficult for me. Um, and then I slowly realized that there was something in the culture or something in the, there, there was something that, um, that was sort of the way you were supposed to be. So people ended up conforming to that. And then the part that didn't look ha- placid and happy and, and well-adjusted and, and sort of got hidden. That was in the shadow, that was underwater. And and, the, and so finding the Dharma, finding the teachings that say, um, of course there's happiness, of course there's pleasure in life, of course there are things that are pleasant, and there's also suffering. And it's not really possible to be a complete person, a whole person, to just acknowledge one side. You know, they both are there, and they both go together. Pleasant and unpleasant are so connected. You know, often what's experienced as pleasant is the absence or the, the change, the discontinuation of what's unpleasant. Um, and then within the pleasant, there can sometimes be a knowing that even though it's pleasant now, even though things are good now, because of impermanence, because we know we have this deep understanding in our bones that things change. Even what's pleasant, there's a little bit of a, 
okay, well, it's good, things are okay, but how much longer will they be okay, you know? So, so the suffering, so, so the, the sense of dukkha, that suffering is really, is really meaningful, is really important to honor, um, to honor whatever difficulties we're going through. Um, they are the path, they're the way. It's like we don't, there's, there's no magic formula to sort of deleting what's difficult. It's like we, the, the almost the radical suggestion of Dharma practice is um, to be present, to be here, to sit still in the midst of our suffering, in the midst of our difficulties. And in this, in this, um, openness, acceptance, this willingness to be with our suffering, to acknowledge it, to understand it, to bring mindfulness to it in all the different ways it manifests, in that something can free, something can open. Um, I think our human tendency is to avoid suffering, to replace it, to substitute it with something else, um, which is understandable, which is really understandable. But there's something about um, this, this willingness to suffer that actually can free us from the suffering. Um, Ajahn Chah, this same Thai teacher, once said that there are two kinds of suffering. There's the suffering that brings more suffering, and then there's the suffering that brings less suffering, or the end of suffering. And just to sort of sense into that and, and and find our own wisdom with, with, you know, this is difficult and if I can be with it, if I can stay with it, in a way that difficulty sort of gets bigger, but it also, we, it, we also start learning something, and get, and gaining insight, gaining wisdom into it. Um, And then when we start to be able to hold our suffering, building our capacity to be with difficult states, pain, um, just as it is, um, we can start to tune into what's called the universal aspect of suffering, the universal dimension, that this is just the nature of, of things when we cling, when we don't not in alignment with things as they are, you know, suffering arises. And to start to just sense into that impersonal dimension or universal dimension can be very helpful. That it's not a personal failing if I'm unhappy, if I suffer. It's something in the nature of how human beings are conditioned to experience our lives and relate to our lives. And, and to the extent that we can see the clinging and, and release the clinging, that suffering will, will be released. So, um, so, so the translation of, of dukkha as suffering is, is, can be very helpful. I think there's a lot of truth in that. And then the reason why some people say that suffering doesn't quite 
capture all of it is that the Buddha made statements like, Buddha made statements like, whatever is felt, whatever is, is felt by a person is, is in the realm of dukkha. And then you think, okay, there is suffering. There's, there's for sure suffering in any human life and sometimes a lot of suffering, a lot of pain. And a big part of practice is, is honoring that, holding that, respecting it, learning how to work with it. But there's also ples- pleasure in life. There's also happiness. There's also joy. There's also delight. There are also positive, wonderful experiences that we wouldn't necessarily characterize as suffering. Um, so how to understand that? You know, what, okay, so Buddha is saying that's also dukkha. It's also dukkha in some sense. Um, and what this is pointing to is, is sort of what I, what I alluded to earlier, that, um, that even pleasant experiences, even happiness that comes from conditions um, is going to change due to impermanence. So by, due to its impermanent nature, experience cannot um, fulfill, maybe cannot satisfy, cannot fulfill the conditions of the world, the things of the world, cannot bring the kind of fulfillment that we tend to want from them, that we tend to hope from them, that we tend to project onto them. Um, so, so in this way, dukkha is sometimes translated as un, the unsatisfactory nature of experience, the unreliable nature, the unfulfilling nature. Um, Bhikkhu Bodhi calls it the flawed nature of things, that from one perspective, they're, um, they're due to their changing nature, they're incapable of giving what we want from them. Um, and this tends to be problematic because we look for um, happiness in things, in the conditions of the world. And it totally makes sense, you know. Um, maybe, maybe it's our body and our, our physical capability, our health, maybe it's um, money, um, the financial crisis of 2008 was a great Dharma practice opportunity because I remember this, there was this one time on the news and they were saying, well, maybe maybe the dollar will go away and there would be just no, you know, maybe all of that will collapse. And it was like, what? You know, this is like this very interesting, you know, I thought in my mind, well, I don't take refuge in money. You know, money's okay, but it's, I, I, you know, I sort of know sometimes money, money is limited in its sense of bringing a deep happiness. But I, I hadn't fully sensed into that 
that attachment. But when they said, oh, that will just, maybe that will all go away. It's like, oh, um, that's scary. Um, so relationships, you know, we, and, and this is not in any sense to um, say it's not important to take care of the financial aspect of our lives. It's not important. <coughs> relationships aren't meaningful and, and, and um, important and lovely. And, but, but just knowing that there's this, they also have this nature of because they're impermanent, um, we can't ask them, we can't use them as a final refuge. Um, So this idea of the unreliability, the unsatisfactory nature is embedded in their, is embedded in the nature of things. Um, and, and the proposition of practice is that rather than asking the things of our life to give us something that they're not capable of giving, is to let the truth of their impermanence bring a letting go. And in that letting go, it's not that the things go away, it's that maybe we're able to appreciate them more. Maybe we're able to appreciate them in a different way. We're not demanding that the water flow uphill. So we can actually enjoy the water and be with it and use it and um, be refreshed by it. We're not demanding that our partners or our children give us something or do something for us that they're not capable, that the relationship's not capable of doing. So there can be a letting go. And in that letting go, we can appreciate the people in our lives as they are, for who they are. Um, I mentioned last week that I was going to this symposium on, on sickness, old age, and death. And um, a panel led by a few people who are just, you know, are just ordinary people, but have experienced in a very deep and life-changing way this, this very thing, this impermanence, this un, unreliable nature. Um, one of the speakers was a Dr. Grace Daman, who was um, a famous physician, is a famous physician who was honored by the Dalai Lama for her work with people um, with AIDS in the 1980s. She was in a terrible car crash on the Golden Gate Bridge, became paralyzed in certain ways, went, went through 13 operations. And she was asked her advice on parenting because she, with her partner, about 20 years ago, she adopted a baby who was HIV positive and had, um, I think, cerebral palsy and maybe wasn't expected, that baby wasn't expected to live, but she's, you know, she's 18, she's in college, she's doing great. And anyway, Grace was asked her advice on parenting and she said something like, um, just this very thing, not to ask more of this relationship than it's capable of giving us, than it should give us. And maybe rather being open to the way this child 
comes into their own reality and how their reality comes forth and then to affirm that, to affirm who they are, their path, their, their destiny. And so this is the gift of when we, when we are open, when we are aligned with things as they are, with impermanence, with um, this un, unreliability, with this impersonal nature, how easy it is to, um, especially I think with family or with children, it's, they're an extension of me. I, you know, don't act that way because it looks bad from, you know, I'm a Dharma teacher. You can't, you know. <laughs> um, I'm attached, I'm identifying, I'm, I'm looking at this person as being me, as mine. Um, and so Grace was offering this, this, this way of what does it look like when, when there's letting go brought into that? What does it look like when we're aligned with how things are? Then we can affirm the reality of each person of who they are, what we can affirm the reality of the flowing water just as it is. That's its nature to flow. Um, when our children grow up and leave us, <laughs> they'll be suffering, I'm sure. <laughs> and, but that's not a mistake. That's the nature of things. That's their nature to... to to grow and change and develop and um, maybe the hardest thing, I, I can imagine one of the hardest things of a human life is to lose a child, is for a child to die. Um, and is there a way of honoring the tremendous tragedy of that, the tremendous grieving that would come with that while in the same way there's this deep knowing that the changing nature of things is not a mistake. It's, it's really not a mistake. Seen from this angle of the changing, this is how things are. And maybe I think until modern medicine, until this modern life, this was a fact of life for people. It maybe was not that uncommon to have a lot of children and lose some of them, you know. Um, so human beings have been dealing with this. We, uh, we talked a little bit about the, the dukkha that comes from clinging, the dukkha that comes from the relationship, um, the relationship of grasping, holding on, or pushing away. And I just want to offer a few ways of working with that in meditation or in our life that we can just sense into a little bit, just in a relaxed way. But it's, I think, one of the most helpful teachings that I've received was um, the, about the value of tuning into any sense of struggle. You know, am I struggling right now? 
And sometimes the answer will be, no, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, basically I feel fine. I feel peaceful, content, at, at least now, at least in this moment, I feel okay. But then often, if we ask the question, there is either a very large or a more subtle sense of struggle with just how things are right now. It may be in meditation, you know, um, some low-grade level of anxiety or of unease. Or it may not be that low-grade. It might be very apparent, a lot of difficult emotions coming up, anger or fear or sadness or shame or... Um, it may be manif- may manifest the sense of struggle as a kind of impatience. When is this going to be over? When is this going to be? When is going to ring the bell? When is it going to? Um, it may be. It may manifest as a sense of this should not be happening right now. Whatever it is, whether it's the pain in my knee, whether it's just the uncontrollable <laughs> nature of thinking. You know, our thinking has the nature of these three characteristics. Our thinking is impermanent. Our thinking is unreliable, unsatisfying uh, for the purpose of lasting happiness. And sometimes our thinking is suffering. And our thinking is not me. It's not mine. It's not who I am. Um, But we often attached to our thinking. We identify with our thinking. Um, so just noticing, you know, is there some sense of struggle? I can't control my thoughts. Well, that's the nature of thoughts. They're, they're, they're uncontrollable. They're not me. They're not mine. Um, but we want to control them. We want to, you know, maybe we have this idea we shouldn't think in meditation. So when we think, so this is a mistake. Why am I thinking? Why is there so much thinking? It's not a mistake. It's just nature. You just see it as the nature of things. Um, so just sort of, of, of tuning in, becoming really sensitive to any sense of struggle is very, very helpful. Because any sign of struggle, any sense of struggle is, is, a, is a marker that something is not being open to in our experience. It's a marker that there's some resistance somewhere, some, um, there's some clinging that maybe we're not seeing. And, but we're seeing the symptom of it, which is the struggle, the sense of struggle. And when we can uh, sense into what the clinging is, what's, what's there that we're not seeing, often the sense of struggle drains away. The sense of struggle can drain away. And just to, just to get um, familiar with this dynamic is really, really helpful in practice. Maybe more helpful than sort of a rigid breath training, or I'm going to be with every breath. And, you know, and, that, and that certainly has its purpose and really helpful at times in practice. But in terms of what will serve us in our life, what will free us, it's really being freed from this sense of struggle, understanding that the struggle comes from the clinging. So um, tuning into the sense of struggle physically can be very important. Often contraction in the body, 
corresponds with mental contraction. You know, are my shoulders, can I relax the shoulders? Can I soften the belly? Um, is there a way that even the face is somehow, um, somehow has tension? The mouth, the eyes, you know, this is just part of being human. But it's, it's in a way, it's part of bracing against change, bracing against impermanence, bracing against the uncontrollable nature of things, uh, the ungovernability. And there's a part of us that just, we, we have to hunker down. And often a much easier way in is through the body. It's, it's subtle, it's so subtle. The mental, the mental resistance, the mental assumptions about experience are so subtle. But the physical, it's just right here. And you know, the body, the body doesn't um, pretend. The body doesn't need to put on a good, you know, dress it up and, and justify things, rationalize. The body's just, you know, just here we can sense into how the body is, that's a, that's a doorway. Um, and then so finally, just to say this, being still, being this willingness to be here, this willingness to be still in the face of, of dukkha, in the face of suffering, in the face of this un- unreliable nature of things um, it it's radical it goes against our maybe it goes against our conditioning or our human nature to want to get away from what's unpleasant and quickly replace what's unpleasant with what's pleasant but there's a tremendous value to to um, to, to meeting our own suffering with with um, acceptance, with understanding, um, with stillness, with silence. And then that, that meeting, that dukkha, can become a great uh, gateway to compassion. You know, to, compassion is simply the natural response of the heart in the face of suffering. You know, so... Um, we can, we can give that compassion over and over as a gift to ourselves to meet our suffering with care. Just naturally, compassion will arise. And then that compassion becomes, can become a basis for how we relate to the world, how we relate to other people. And when we see someone who's clearly struggling, you know, the sense of struggle, they're clearly struggling, they're clearly suffering, they're angry, they're in pain, they're and we're able to sense into um, the dukkha there. And we can relate to the dukkha and, and, and meet, meet, meet it all with compassion, meet it all with care. Um, and in that, something is freed. Something is freed. So, it's, so I think the, um, the offering of the Buddha is not to escape the impermanent world. It's not to be free from impermanence. It's not to be free from the inherent unreliability of the things of the world. But 
it's to be free within this world, within this world of change, within this world of unreliability, of uncontrollability. We don't need to suffer. We don't need to create extra suffering for ourselves. Um, and that can transform us and transform the people around us, the people in our lives. So any degree, any degree of letting go, any, any degree of seeing this, relaxing the struggle, will relax the suffering and bring more freedom. Um, so that is good news. That's good news to whatever degree we can see the clinging. Every degree we can see the, the, the clinging, the holding on, the stomping our feet at the, you know, the water that's flowing downhill. Every degree we can see that, open to it, um, that suffering will release. And there'll be, it will drain the suffering and bring more ease, more lightness, more freedom. Um, and it's a freedom, it's a happiness that's not based on conditions. It's not based on things being just right in my life. My career is like this, and my bank account is like this, and my relationship is like this. All the people I love are safe and happy and healthy. Then I'll be happy, you know. And this is saying it doesn't depend on that. It's a happiness that comes from seeing all those conditions as they are letting them be as they are, letting them go their own way. And that's what brings the happiness, that letting go brings the happiness. So that's called a happiness that's independent of conditions. Um, and it's said to be a, a deep happiness, a greater happiness, because there isn't that fear in it that something's going to change, something's going to upset the apple cart. just want to close with this Zen line, this line from a Zen teaching of Dogen's. And it took me a long time to, to piece together what this meant, but maybe in, in the context of dukkha, this will make sense. The, the teaching goes like this. When the Dharma does not completely fill our body and mind. We think things are already complete. We think things are fine. We think things are um, perfect, complete. When the Dharma does fill our body and mind, we know that something is missing. We know that something is missing. At first I thought, well, wait a second. Shouldn't it be that when the Dharma fills us, everything is complete and perfect? And this is actually challenging that and saying, when the Dharma fills us, we open to dukkha. We see that something is missing in our experience, in any experience that a human being can have. There's this element, inherent element of, mm, it's not, it's not the way it should be. It's not this, this inherent unease. So this is the dukkha. 
this feeling like something is missing. And, and this is where we practice. This is where, where we open to. When we can open to this feeling and we open to it, um, something can be let go of. Um, and it's something that is, um, we open to something that's beyond the conditions of, you know, that it's that um, a happiness that is, comes from seeing their nature and not holding on to them. Um, so if you've had that sense that something is missing, that is really great. <laughs> that's insight. And, and, um, and let that be the basis for, for letting go. Let that be the basis for seeing things as they are uh, more and more and more so that the heart um, naturally, organically, lets go. So thank you very much. And, uh, we have time for a few questions. Do you want to uh, get the mic? Or? I had a question on, do you think suffering is entirely inside you, or do you think it comes from external sources, outside? I think suffering comes entirely from the outside. So can you prove to me that it's not where that suffering is? (laughs) Um, You know, some of it depends on the use of language. But I would say if we make a distinction, just for example, between pain and suffering, pain is inherent, you know, physical pain is inherent in being a person. You know, there will be unpleasant sensation. You know, that's not optional. The second arrow, the, the suffering, the resistance to the pain, the it shouldn't be here, the locking around it, the solidifying, that's the dukkha that we can be free of. The dukkha of the unpleasant sensation, I think that's inherent in being human. So, the, so the, my understanding of this teaching is that um, the dukkha of unreliability, unsatisfactory nature, the, or, or you know, of unpleasant, you know, of just unpleasant sensation. Um, it's, it's the, the idea that that unpleasantness doesn't bring suffering, doesn't bring, so it's being free from our reactivity around it. <laughs> so does that answer your question or you're, or you're talking about something else? I think suffering comes from outside entirely and I can prove it to you if you want me to. Please. Where's your cell phone? I don't know. There you go, that's, <laughs> suf- that's suffering. I just caused you to suffer. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's just my... You, well, you caused me to suffer because I have a, an idea that I should, I should hang on to my cell phone. You know? If, if I didn't have that idea... Right. It's still external. But anyway, that's... <laughs> um... Yeah, no. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. 
I mean, it, it's definitely true that, um, you know, the conditions of our life are extreme. It's kind of funny because I asked a Buddhist teacher one time, and he was talking about suffering. He said, suffering is always internal. But then I asked him, where's your cell phone? And he got all nervous. Like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> That's an external. Well, and, and yeah, and dukkha, I think dukkha covers all of that. You know, it, um, but to understand the part of dukkha that's inherent in experience helps us to be free of this, the part of dukkha that we add, the extra part. I think the suffering part is how we incorporate it. because of our attachment, our, yeah, yeah. 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 And with that example, you know, it's relatively easy to see it. And then, you know, other conditions of our life, the loss of a, of a, of a loved one, a dear one, um, there's going to be a lot of pain, a lot of suffering around it. And, and so just holding it with a lot of care and also, you know, letting these teachings um, help us to let go. You know, at a certain point, we all have to let go. And, um, yeah, thank you. Okay, well, thank you very much. Oh. I'm having difficulty synthesizing the concepts of impermanence with the concepts of mindfulness and being present in the moment. Uh Uh, You know, like the glass is impermanent, it will break someday, but chances are very high that it is going to be present for this moment. Yeah. And, you know, there's moment, uh, there's relationships I have that will change over time, and sometime there will be a death. But right now, they're really good. Yeah, <laughs> they're yeah, fun. yeah, yeah. Um, so in being mindful, I'm being present for what is now. And then the whole impermanence is really kind of, is this like a contingent philosophy that I apply when uh, it does change? Uh, or great, is great this question. something that it's supposed to be in yeah. moment to moment? Yeah, yeah, no, that's a great question. And um, the mindfulness, is, I mean, exactly what, beautiful, exactly what you said, you know, to be present for things as they are now. Um, and the glass is here now and I'm here for it right now. The relationship is here now. I'm here for it right now, appreciating it, enjoying it, mindful of it. Um, Great. Through the mindfulness, um, 
you know, so the so impermanence it can it, it is a concept, you know, and it, it's good to have that understanding, but more useful in the dharmic sense and more freeing to us is through the mindfulness to be able to um, open to and tune in to the changing nature of whatever it is we're observing. So, you know, with a glass or something that's solid, it may not be so easy to see how this is, you know, we might look at it and we know, okay, glass can break or something, you know, okay, you kind of have that, but that's still conceptual. Maybe, I don't know, if we stared at the glass for, for five hours, we could kind of see it moving and something, I don't know. But there's a, maybe more useful and more helpful is, um, I think this is why the Buddha emphasized so much mindfulness of the body, including mindfulness of the breath. Body is a concept, but if we're being mindful of the body, we're tuning into the, cha- to the sensations that make up the body and breath, and those sensations, we may begin to notice they're always changing. You know, they kind of come together, something that we call the body or the breath. But the breath, even the in-breath, is not just like one thing, an out-breath. There's a way of being so, of having the mindfulness be so clear and continuous that we're sort of seeing the boop, 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 that make up the the in-breath and the boop, boop, boop. We're seeing that it's just changing sensations. And so it's part of mindfulness. It's something that just comes from continuous mindfulness. Then this facet of experience starts to show itself. And then we're like, oh, what I'm seeing now, what's in, what's highlighted is the changing nature. Not so much the content, oh, this is my thought, this is my thought about this person who I care about, this is my thought about, but we're seeing is, oh, thought, feeling, sensation, 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 thought. Oh, it's all just changing. You know, so we can, that can happen. And then we start to tune in to the change, just the, the impermanent nature of it. So just to say it's most valuable in an experiential way, and we don't have to, um, I mean, looking for it is fine, and looking for it can be helpful, but we don't have to think about it. Um, and that understanding of being with the changing nature of experience hopefully will come out into our life in relationships, for example, where, okay, this relationship is great, and it's not so much that it's going to change so it doesn't matter, but appreciate it now because it may change. It will change. We know it will change. So love it now, appreciate it now, and then, and then when it changes, um, maybe we're, we're, we don't suffer as much because we know, oh yeah, that's right. Everything changes. It's going to change. And, but thank you. Great question. Okay, thank you. Thank you very much.